0: It's time for the PowerMizzou.com podcast.
1: With interviews and analysis of your Missouri Tigers.
0: Now, here's your host, D. DeArmond. Welcome to another week of the powermazoo.com podcast. Maybe the last one of the year. Who knows? Next week's the early signing period. We have no idea what to expect out of that. How that's going to go after that. It's Christmas. I'll be in Houston, so who knows? You might not have to deal with me for a couple weeks. But we want to uh, spend this week talking about the new look of the Southeastern Conference. Missouri still has its head coach, uh, still looking for some assistance and an offensive coordinator and all that. But a lot of the league has new faces, and we're going to kind of tour some of those changes in the SEC this week. We're going to start down in College Station, Texas. Mark Passwaters covers the Aggies for AggieYell.com. Mark, what's going on, man?
2: Ah, just trying to get through this uh, exciting period with a, a new coach, a new offensive coordinator, basically a new everything. We're still looking for a defensive coordinator. So the excitement just never stops. And apparently yeah. neither does Jimbo Fisher. The man is on the move all the time.
0: Yeah. So, I, I mean, take us uh, – I'll be honest. When I first saw Texas a and M's going to target Jimbo Fisher, I mean, I'm going, well, yeah, teams are going to target Nick Saban and, and Bill Belichick too, but that's probably not going to happen. So – how how long was this in the works, and how confident was a and it was going to get its guy before they even fired Kevin Sumlin? Uh,
2: this has been in the works for a while. From what I was able to, to dig up, uh, they started making feelers after the choke job at UCLA, and that was August the 28th. Right. So uh, by, by the first week of September, they, there were people out there, Kind of gauging interest in some major coaches, and it was funny, like, like you said, you know, teams are going to go after Nick Saban and they're going to go after Belichick and all that. They had a list of six guys that they first started trying to talk to back in oh shoot the middle of se- September, and dude, Saban was on the list, Jimbo awesome. was on the list. I mean, it was just the names were ridiculous, yeah. and you know, it, and somebody told me point blanks, like, look, we're either going to get them or they're going to get a pay raise and they said that no sooner did it happen that james franklin who was one of the six on the list got a pay raise and i began to think okay maybe they're they're serious about this Mm -hmm. and by probably middle of october we had a pretty good idea that they were that they were after jimbo and certainly the last two weeks you know there was some some discussion outside that no they don't know who it is and This is going to go down to the wire now. They they had pretty much honed in on Fisher, and I think they knew well before the season ended that, one, they were going to make a change, and, two, it was going to be Fisher that was replacing someone. All
0: right, so on the surface, I mean, Jimbo left a top-five program probably in the country for a top-five program maybe in the SEC. I mean, I, I don't think that's an insult to say that. I think that's the reality of the situation. So why did he leave?
2: Uh well, there are a couple of reasons. One, facilities. A and M is number one in the country, probably. Uh, and that has been a huge sticking point with him and FSU. They don't have a football only facility, which is kind of amazing considering wow. all the success that they've had. You know, they have to share facilities with other programs. And he has been he really harped on the the, the fact that look, we can't compete with like Clemson or Florida or Miami, you know. Programs that either have top-notch facilities or are in the process of building them if we don't make the commitment that is necessary, and he was basically told, take a number, wait your turn. Uh, they He really did not get along with the, the major – I don't know what you call it, the the – Booster Club donors, president, yeah. yeah, that thing they like call it the Tomahawk Club or something or other. Uh, but uh, you know, he didn't get along with them. Didn't get along with the AD because they thought that he complained too much and harped a lot. Uh, his support staff was amazingly small considering, you know, the quality of the program. Uh, he wanted more money for assistance, and basically, he just kind of got kept on getting pushed off and pushed off and pushed off. And one of the things he said is, "Look, we spent a lot of this money on you the last couple of years." So AM was sitting there going, Hey, look, we already got all this. So if you know, if this is really important to you, if this is what you need to compete, well then here you go.
0: All right. So what is the expectation level now that AM has hired Jimbo Fisher? I mean, I've said and it's not just about AM. I I, I think it's you can say it about a lot of schools in the SEC. This league has been sabanized where if you're not eleven and one, you know, you're looking for a new coach. I mean, you play in the SEC West. If you go 9-3, and three, I think you had a really good year if you're at, at Texas A&M, but I'm not sure that Texas A&M people feel that way. So what's the expectation?
2: Well, the expectation is eventually to win a national championship. Yeah, I mean, you look at it, everything that you need is in place. You have a wealthy fan base. You have top-notch facilities. You have a fertile recruiting ground, a recruiting ground that is going to expand now that you're bringing in these guys that have ties across the Southeast. Uh, you know, basically – there are very few reasons that you can think of off the top, outside of past history, that A and M should not compete. They have all the things that you could possibly want. You know, if you're looking for all the toys, all the gadgets, they've got it. Uh, they've, you know, obviously they got the state of Texas. They have a massive following now. You're on TV every week, so why shouldn't you compete? And they decided that they were going to go out there, break the bank, and try to, you know, solve the problem by throwing money at it. I.
0: That all—I mean—all those reasons obviously make sense. And in my counter is the only reasons maybe you shouldn't compete on a regular basis are Auburn, Alabama, LSU—all three in your division, which have those expectations every year. And I mean, to win a national title, it—you it, know—like if you're at Tennessee, all you've got to do is beat one of those teams every year. It, to win a national title at A&M, you got to beat them all. I mean, that's tough. Oh.
2: Oh yeah, it's it's going to be real tough, but that's why they're paying the man seven and a half million dollars a year. They, you know, there is they they certainly have assembled at least on offense. They they've got the offensive staff set, and they have some really really good recruiters in this bunch. I mean, they're going for broke, and uh, you know the way Fisher has worked since he got here. I mean, he's on the plane to California today. Last night he started the evening in Yoakum, Texas. Somehow got up to Houston for the Touchdown Club meeting. Uh, you know, he has seen every A&M commit. He's seen basically every major target. Uh, he's taken, you know, trips to Georgia to recruit quarterbacks. He's out to California today. You know, the man just has not stopped working. He still found time to put together coaching staff, review film from the team. You know, it's just crazy. I've never seen a guy like this, but I guess if you're getting paid that much and you're going to compete with these monsters, then this is what has to be done.
0: Well, and here's the thing. This is kind of off topic, but that I've always wondered about um, coaches like, okay, Jimbo's making $7.5 million a year. Like, these coaches, their clothes are all free because all they ever wear is university stuff. They ha- they generally get a free car, a free country club membership. Like, what's he spend $7.5 million a year on in College Station, Texas?
2: Uh, well, he could probably buy the place. Um, <laughs> but, but seriously um, – you know he does have a son that has some health issues, some serious mm. health issues, uh, and I'm sure that that's not cheap. A uh, and M's insurance, I'm sure, picks up the vast majority of that, but you you never know. Right. Uh, you know, certainly he can basically do whatever he wants, but you know, listening to the guy when he introduced himself on you know last Monday, he's like, "Well, I like to wear boots, I like to chew tobacco, I like to shoot my guns, and I like to throw my my fishing line." And you know, cheap seems like habits, a, a, man. Yeah, you know, pretty cheap habits. I mean, that unless you're going to make that uh, that fishing line made of platinum, but uh, <laughs> you know, certainly he's secure for life because this is a, a guaranteed contract and he's not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah. But uh, you know, all I got to say is I would like to find out what I could do with seventy five million bucks.
0: Oh, it's it's a good problem to have, no question. Uh, all right, last thing for you. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, obviously Kevin Sumlin's name came up at, at- uh, Arizona State, UCF kinda I think looked into him. So what's Kevin Sumlin do now?
2: I think he probably sits around for a year and counts his money. know yeah, he's getting ten point four million dollars to go away. Uh, you know, another thing that I would really like to to find out is, you know, just how upset would I be how 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 you know, how hard would it be on my my ego to be fired? But get ten point four million dollars in the process. I yeah. think I could probably balance it out. Uh, you know, I something out there did not sit well with you know other programs. I thought he was going to get ASU. I honestly did. Yeah. Then he was involved with UCF, and that fell apart. He turned down Tennessee. You know, I guess. Well, everybody either,
0: turns down Tennessee.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I guess it's he's either looking for a right fit or there's something that people didn't really like uh maybe a year off will do do well for him i can see him definitely going into tv he's kind of got that magnetic persona when the the cameras come on so there's that possibility but i think he'll be back eventually i yeah. mean he's 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 he may not have been a good enough coach for the sec west but he's plenty good enough for a lot of other places
0: i mean i could see him i could see him going back to purdue when uh when jeff Brom gets another job next year yeah i could see that easily Yeah, all right, Mark. Well, I appreciate it, man. Have a good one, and we'll uh, catch up with you down the road. All right. Take care, Gabe. Mark Passwaters from AggieYell.com. We continue on the SEC coaching carousel, and now we go to Knoxville, Tennessee. Welcome in old friend Blake Topmeyer, no longer at the Columbia Daily Tribune, but covering Tennessee for the Knoxville News Sentinel. Blake, what's up, man?
3: Oh, not too much. I'm just uh, looking forward to this early signing period as I'm sure you are. And by looking forward, I mean – no, uh, couldn't we have just stuck to one signing day?
0: <laughs> exactly. You, you, uh, you wearing checkerboard overalls for this interview? No, I'm not. I, I haven't, uh, haven't, haven't purchased my, my
3: overalls yet.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Christmas coming up, man. You never know. Uh, <laughs> all right. So we just talked to, uh, one of our guys from A&M about their coaching search. And like, so you couldn't find two more diametrically opposite coaching searches. A&M found their guy, went and got him for a ridiculous amount of money and then, Tennessee found their guy, and then found another guy, and then found another guy, and eventually got a guy.
3: <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I mean, when you look at Tennessee's coaching search compared to A and M's or compared to Florida's, it's just you know total one hundred and eighty, as you were saying. Um, I mean, it, it's so interesting because I think overall, if, if like I were to grade the hire of Jeremy Pruitt, I'd be like I'm C plus probably. Yeah. Um, and honestly, if, if I were going to grade the hire of Greg Shiano and let's take the Penn state stuff out of it, just grading it as a coaching hire, I'd probably be like, ah, maybe C plus, you know, I, I I think they kind of score in similar range. I mean, Shiano's got the head coaching experience. Pruitt doesn't Pruitt, I guess you could say, you don't know what he's capable of. So maybe he has higher upside. So yeah, I mean, final grades, I probably would grade him about the same. It's just, you know, it was kind of a mess to, to get to that, that point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, so the Cliff Notes version is they had an agreement with Shiano. It was signed. The fans got mad. Then, like, seven people turned him down, and they finally, finally settled on Pruitt. I mean, just being, like, on the inside of this thing to some extent, it, how do you even sum up what happened in those three or four weeks? It was kind
3: of a circus, really. Um, you know, I, I think if, if anything, this is going to be like the poster child for search firms, um, yeah. because you know, and, and I kind of have mixed feelings on search firms, I guess. But you know, John Curry, the former athletic director at Tennessee, who was fired amid this search, said he wasn't going to use a search firm. He Was going to spearhead this this search with a, a couple close people on the inside and 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 find their man and and that was greg shano and it blew up and then curry remained on the search and and as you kind of alluded to was turned down uh by one coach after another and and on the other side i mean you know you just wonder had they used a search firm could this have gone a little bit more more smoothly uh or was this just doomed from the start. Whenever they announced someone who wasn't named uh, John Gruden or or, or uh, some some splashy name like that, uh, you know, I if you at the start of this process, I thought Curry was going to produce someone who was a veteran coach, wasn't a flashy name. Maybe you could argue is a little bit of a retread, um, etc. And and it would just be kind of a meh hire. Mm-hmm. and that was my prediction going in, into this, and his initial hire, Greg Ciano, exactly I think what, was was exactly that, um, and then we just got, after, after that blew up, it, it just became a wild roller coaster that ended up with Philip Fulmer uh, claiming the reins of the AD chair and, and hiring Jeremy
2: Pruitt.
0: Yeah, people always ask me, how long is a coaching search fun, and I say, Seven to ten days. After that, it just pisses you off. So I guess you spent probably two and a half weeks just extremely pissed off.
3: <laughs> yeah, it was. By the time it was over, it was it was really ready for for it to end. And um, and you know the interesting thing was when it ended, Tennessee fans by and large were popping the bubbly over the hire of Jeremy Pruitt, which is totally fine. I mean, hope should spring. Eternal whenever you hire a, 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 a new coach. Uh, that's just the way it's supposed to be. However, had John Curry announced the hire of Jeremy Pruitt on November 12th when the news leaked of Greg Shiano, had Jeremy Pruitt been his man, I think the reaction would have been much different mm-hmm. than it was when Pruitt's hire was announced December 1st. Same guy, just as qualified December 1st and, and November 12th. But I think the reaction was strikingly different. One, because I think Tennessee fans had by by December first had swallowed the dose of reality that they're not going to hire some big name celebrity. Right. And two, and, and I think this is just as important, Philip Fulmer was announcing this hire and not John Curry. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's the same guy, but I but I think um, you know same same coach, but I think who was announcing the hire. Um, makes a lot of difference to, to how fans have, have reacted to it.
0: And I, I know there were a couple stories out there. I mean, according to what you know, was there like truth to this Fulmer trying to sabotage Curry and get the AD job and that was part of this or, or was that a little bit of a sensationalist clickbait? Yeah, you know, that's that's a tough one. I I, hesit- I, I I have not reported that.
3: Obviously, I've seen those reports. Um, I, I think using the word sabotage is is a pretty strong word. One that I would not be comfortable using to say that Philip Fulmer sabotaged John Curry's search. Um, I mean, let's be honest, the search. Was kind of a debacle from the start, and and Philip Fulmer wasn't even involved in the, in the search at the start. So um, now, do I think Philip Fulmer was kind of licking his chops and pretty excited to slide into the AD chair whenever things went amuck? Absolutely, uh, I, I think he was thrilled about uh, sliding his way into that that AD chair and and uh, you know being the prince who who rode in and and saved the day by producing a, a coach. Um, but I, I I don't feel comfortable saying that he sabotaged the search. I He was definitely involved in portions of the search after the Shiano deal fell through. Uh, he, he was involved in negotiations with Dave Doran at North Carolina State, um, and he was not involved in John Curry's negotiations with, with Mike Leach, um, which was basically John Curry's last act before he was fired. So, you know, I I do feel comfortable saying he was involved there toward the end. Whether he sabotaged it, eh, that's probably a little, little stronger than I would say.
0: Yeah. All right, last thing for you. And this is, like, look, my thoughts on Tennessee's fan base and uh, expectations there are no secret. And I know they're no secret to you because we've talked about them even going back to before you covered Tennessee. But – I look at Tennessee and say, you know, it's been 15 years since they were really a nationally relevant program. If you go 9-3 and three at Tennessee, that means, you know, you've probably lost to Georgia, Florida, Alabama, and haven't lost a single game that you shouldn't lose. Uh, I think that's a pretty good year. If Jeremy Pruitt goes 9-3 and three for three or four years, are, are people okay with that in Knoxville, or is this— Nebraska East, where everybody still thinks it's for some reason still 1997.
3: Well, they certainly weren't satisfied in Knoxville after uh, Butch Jones is back-to-back right. nine-win years now, and obviously the things got piled on even more this year with the worst season in program history. But yeah, I think this is a, a fan base that that does have the expectations that this is still the 90s. Um, now, I guess the counter argument is a lot of other programs have gone through downtimes times and, and rebounded, but I do think Tennessee's expectations probably are a little bit outdated. Uh, I, I think this is a program that should consistently be in bowl games. I think this is a program that should um, take its turn in winning the SEC East, which um, to me, that's probably the biggest. Uh, thing you can say about Tennessee in the, the last uh, decade plus is that they haven't taken their turn winning the east. Right. I mean they they should be taking their turn doing that. I don't I don't think that's um, you know, unrealistic expectations, but the fact that uh, the idea that this this program is is a head coach away from, you know, the, returning to the days of the 90s I, I think that's really, really a tough expectation. I mean, I guess you could make that argument about every program of being an elite coach away, but there's only so many of those coaches out there. And I, I do think that, I mean, Tennessee to me is a top 20 job. I don't think it's, it's in the conversation of being a, a top 10 job and there's, there's nothing, I mean, top 20 jobs, still sure. pretty good. That's okay. yeah. um, but, but, but it's not top 10. It's not Alabama. Um, it's not Ohio state. And, you know, it's not Florida. I mean, you can run down the list. It's it's just not on that level. And um and, and so I think your your expectations for an average season have to adjust accordingly.
0: Yep. All right, man. Well, uh, appreciate it. Hope things settle down a little bit there, and uh, maybe you can enjoy Christmas.
3: Absolutely. Sounds good, Gabe.
0: All right, Blake. Have a good one, man. Okay, thanks. Blake Topmeyer, Knoxville News Sentinel covers the volunteers and an old friend from his days in Columbia. We are going to finish up our tour of the SEC coaching carousel in Fayetteville, Arkansas with Trey Biddy from hogsports.com. Trey, I think the last time we talked, we were maybe passing on the field in Fayetteville the day after Thanksgiving, and you said, got to go. The ADs having a press conference. They just fired Brett Bielema. Um, So that was an unceremonious end five minutes after the game.
1: Yeah, it was. And I guess that's just kind of how things go in football, you know, with the – the AAC Championships game, they had announced Scott Frost going to Nebraska yeah. in the fourth quarter of that game. And, of course, with this one we found out just, I mean, five minutes after the game was over, less than that really, that that Brett Bielman had been fired, a press release had been put out. and uh, Then a two-week coaching search that ended with a guy that I think is a good fit for Arkansas. I think Arkansas is – uh, one of the problems under the Brett Dillman regime is they really struggled in getting into Texas. There was only 15 scholarship players over the last five years from the state of Texas compared wow. to that to Oklahoma State who had 56 in the same time period. And what do you do when you make a coaching change? Usually you go for a guy that's a lot different. If you had a player's coach, you go for the CEO type. If you had a defensive guy, you go for an offensive guy. And in this case, it was not only you know going from a defensive ground-and-pound guy to an up-tempo type of offense, but also going to a guy with strong, strong recruiting ties in Texas. And a lot of people on his staff that will bring you over are from Texas. So, um Actually I've already added two commitments from the state of Texas since he's been on board wow. and um that's uh I think that's been kind of a missing piece of the puzzle.
0: All right, before we get to a little more in depth to Chad Morris, can you kinda of tell me was the Gus Malzon thing a a possibility at one point or was that always a hey, I wanna show Auburn I'm willing to leave if they don't appreciate me move?
1: No, I believe it was a it was a definitely a possibility. Um I think it's something that he considered. Arkansas was rumored to have offered seven million. From what I had heard, it was six million, but there was like 100% guaranteed versus Auburn offering 7.1, I think, and maybe 60% 70% guaranteed. I can't remember, but whatever it was, Arkansas was paying less per year but guaranteed more over the length of the contract, and. To me, personally, I'm glad that Arkansas made a run at him. Some people could say that Arkansas got played or whatever. But there's been so much talk over here since 2006, really, when this thing went down and, and Malzahn was the offensive coordinator at Arkansas and then left for Tulsa and amid you know, a lot of controversy and stuff. And there are a lot of people around here who feel that Malzahn should have been the head coach at this time, should have been the head coach at this time, you know, when there was an opening. And for all the talk that was around the state, he wants to go home. He wants to – he's not happy at Auburn. You know, his family wants to leave Auburn. Uh, he's tired of coaching for his game every week. The first time he loses two, he'll be out of there. He, he doesn't like that, you know, all this stuff. Well, none of that's true. Gus Malzahn doesn't want to come back home to Arkansas. He wants to be at Auburn. And now we can put that behind us, and nobody has to talk about that on talk radio all the time like we've done for the past decade. <laughs> nobody has to talk about that on the message boards. Arkansas made their run about uh, at him. He didn't want to come over. So, to me, Arkansas is able to move on now. They get the same offense, basically. Uh, Chad Morris is a a Gus Malzahn disciple. And, um, yeah, and Auburn's stuck paying the bill, I guess.
0: Yeah, what was the reaction to the Morris hire? Because I'm with you. I mean, as soon as it was pretty obvious Bielema was going to get fired, I kind of said, hey, assuming the Malzon thing doesn't happen, Norvell and Chad Morris would both make a lot of sense and I think be pretty good hires. Was the fan base happy with it?
1: They were. I don't know that eventually when, when you know, things first came out, I don't think it, that they were just, you know, as has a possibility. I don't think everybody was just jumping on board, and there's a few reasons for that. Now, our sources had Morris in the mix from the get-go. Norvell, Morris, and Gus Malzon were the three guys at the very beginning that we reported on from very good sources. Um, we do also believe strongly that Mike Leach was under consideration there at the end. And I don't know that a lot of people know that, but uh, we do believe pretty firmly that he was in consideration and, and in talks. But with Morris, when you look at it on the surface, you're going to look at, okay, his recruiting classes are ranked in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, you look at his record, and they're 7-5. Okay, not impressive. But you have to understand what SMU is. SMU may be the worst job, football coaching job <laughs> right. in the state of Texas. Uh, the academic standards are ridiculously high. They're Ivy League in a lot of ways. There's been players that have gotten admitted into Ivy League schools that could not get admitted to SMU. Wow. Um, you know, there's a lot of – you know, even Rice has high academic standards, but they just use general entrance requirements. Baylor, same deal. Uh, SMU does not do that. I mean, can you imagine going on your official visit and, you, and your borderline academics and you got to meet before a committee? I mean, that sounds like a, a ball of fun. So um, <laughs> if you talk to anybody at Clemson, coach, media, fans, adored, adored Chad Morris, and largely a lot of them responsible – a lot of them credit – a lot of people credit him, excuse me, for saving Dabo's job when he went over there. I mean, Clemson was in trouble. They couldn't beat South Carolina. The offense had gone downhill, and Morris came over there, You know, recruited the heck out of Deshaun Watson, brought him in, and changed the offense, and the rest is history. I mean, the offense they're running now are from people that learned it from Chad Morris. If you talk to people at SMU, they're not like, ah, oh, 7-5, and five, whatever. They're they're pretty jacked up that they're relevant in football. I mean, he took over a 1-11 program. They averaged 11 points a game. Then he had them to 30 points the next year and 40-plus the next year. So that's, that's definitely mark improvement, really just a couple of plays away from, from winning nine games. So when it, once that kind of information started getting out to people that it's not just 7-5 and five in the 80th-ranked recruiting class, that there are reasons that it's like that. I think people got more excited about it. Sorry, that was a long answer to a short question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No sweat. Uh, So, I mean, what are reasonable expectations, Morris's first two or three years? I guess what I'm really asking is, where's the program at that he's taken over? Is this just kind of down and Arkansas was a little bit off, or is he taking over something that Bielema left in bad shape?
1: Well, there's goods and and bads to what Bielema left. Bielema took over – Really, his first year, if you look back at it, there are twenty players who have played in the NFL on that roster, that two thousand and thirteen team that went three and nine. There are twenty players, and you know not all of them are ready to go to the NFL right now, but you know, just looking back, I think it'll be interesting moving forward five years from now to see how many players on this two thousand and eighteen team uh, you know have played in the NFL but I think when you look at things like APR health of the program, the quality character of kids. Bielma did a fantastic job in all of those things. I mean, there was probably like six or seven arrests. They were all, you know, kids making foolish mistakes, drinking, you know, underage, stuff like that. But like six or seven in five years. Uh, So that's a pretty impressive mark. And, you know, no violent crimes under Bielma. Just just pretty pretty solid socially. Academically, they set records for, you know, honor roll. Uh, they led the SEC, I think, two years in academic honor roll. Um, you know, bumped the, the team's uh, football GPA to the highest it's been. So those kinds of things are in great order. I do think that there are players on this team that Arkansas – And another one of the the things I would list as a downfall, they didn't recognize the talent early enough. I mean, they had a guy who missed two chip shot field goals and had cost you games in the past still kicking for them. And, you know, they put the backup in and he goes eight of nine on field goals. And then, you know, T.J. Hammonds, a guy that saved them in the Coastal Carolina game with an 88-yard touchdown run and a 60-yard touchdown catch, uh, got two snaps in the second quarter of the next game. You know, yeah. they they never really subscribed to the idea of the last year, and I think a lot of it is assistant coach hires. They made some mistakes on assistant coach hires, but they never subscribed to the idea of going to the hot hand at running back. There wasn't a single running back on Arkansas's roster this year that had a 20-carry game. They just rotate him freely. You know, it was never, well, this guy's, you know, dominating. Let's let's keep going to him. No, it was, well, we got to get this guy in now. Yeah. Um so there are things like that, Brandon Martin, the number one junior college wide receiver in the country, not playing much. Uh, you know Chase Hayden, who was you know they all they talked about was how awesome he was doing in practice. He came out in the opener and did extremely well for a true freshman. And then the next game, against TCU, he only had two carries. Why did he only have two carries? Well, they were worried the stage was a little bit too big for him. Arkansas scored seven points in that game, and they kept one of their most dynamic players on the bench. Was the stage too big for everybody? <laughs> yeah. So there are all kinds of questions like that about utilizing the talent that you have. Um, and then, you know, there are some other things. I think probably overall, you know, we could look at this roster and say maybe the talent is about where it was when Brett took over, but the health of the program is definitely better.
0: All right, last thing for you, you think Bielema is somewhere next year or is he going to sit out and kind of see what happens?
1: I don't know that he's going. I think he's kind of missed the boat on this round of uh, of coaching jobs, unless somewhere somehow some dominoes start to fall. But uh, I think next year that there's there's a possibility that he'll be coaching somewhere. But I, I think a year off might be good for him.
0: All right, thanks, Trey. I appreciate it, man. And we'll uh, we'll catch up with you uh, probably down in Fayetteville for for basketball in a couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, I'll see you there, Gabe. Thanks All right, buddy, me
0: Have a good one. Trey Biddy, hogsports.com. So there you go, just jumping around to a few of the moves in the SEC. Kind of want to get you guys all uh, set up on it. Uh, Just some information from those programs. Now, hopefully next week we'll uh, well, we'll preview bragging rights, uh, preview the Texas Bowl next week on the podcast if everything works out right with timing, and then uh, probably take a week off for Christmas headed into 2018. So thanks for listening, and uh, we should be back in seven days.